Welcome to Movie Mavericks, a show where we talk smack about movies. That's still a tagline four episodes in. I don't know. We're just rolling with it. I am your host, Lamron Mahasha, and this is my co-host, V-Lord GTC. How you doing, V-Lord? Uh, I'm doing uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. And we also got two pretty good movies we're talking about today. Well... One's not just pretty good, one's amazing! And it's an all-time classic, but we'll get to that, we'll get to that. But the other one, I guess you, some would consider it amazing, considering it is nominated for the Oscars for Best Animated Picture. Guess which one it is, which one are we talking about? Can you guess? Zootopia. No, that came out last year. We already saw it. Pretty great film, though. Kubo and the Two Strings. We already talked about that on our first episode, the best movies of 2016. Kubo was my number one all-time favorite best movie of 2016. You should be watching it. You should go watch it. In fact, stop this podcast right now, put it on pause, and go watch Kubo and the Two Strings and then come back. I'll wait for you. Did you do it? You good? Great. Resume the podcast. Hmm, what does that leave? What does that leave? <gasps> of course. Of course. The only animated film at, from Japan, anime, that was nominated for the Oscars. You be your name? That's right, your name. Now let's just wait a minute. Your name wasn't nominated for the Oscars, now wasn't it? Yes, the now best-selling anime film of all time was not nominated for the Oscars. Horse crap! How the crap does that happen? I mean, regardless of how you feel about Makoto Shinkai films, it's the best-selling anime film of all time. It should have gotten nominated. Shenanigans. I call shenanigans. But, uh, sadly, no. We're not talking about your name. We're going to talk about the actual anime. Well, sort of anime. Not really anime. Just kind of associated with It's a French-Japanese co-production. Yeah, but it's mostly on the French side. It's The Red Turtle. The film by Michael Dudok DeWitt, who previously uh, won the Academy Award for Best Short Anime Film in 2000 with his film Father and Daughter, which was, indeed, it's a very moving short film that I highly recommend. He's done many other short films before. That's mainly his filmography. But this is his first feature film, his directorial debut on a feature film, which is pretty amazing, because he's in his early 60s, so, wow, that's pretty cool for him, but, yes, so, this is pretty interesting, uh, his directorial debut for a feature, and it's a major co-production, there are a lot of studios involved, of course, the big name that anime fans are going to know will be Studio Ghibli. But, of course, there's Prima Linea involved, Why Not involved, Wild Bunch involved, CN4, 
productions involved, Art France Cinema involved, Bellevision was involved. Like, bunch of studios were involved in this. And in the U.S., this is being distributed by Sony Pictures Classics. I mean, the main two studios, though, are, well, a bunch in Ghibli. And apparently this film came about because uh, Hayao Miyazaki was shown the film Father and Daughter, and that he wanted to seek out Michael Dr. Witt and approach him with the prospect of co-producing a film. Which is strange, because Miyazaki wasn't involved with this film, though. Yeah, but uh, he got the ball rolling. And so he got, like, Wild Bunch to approach to Dr. Witt and convince him to do the project that uh, Ghibli and Wild Bunch had been thinking up on. And so he wrote the screenplay. Uh, he co-wrote it with Pascal Ferrand. And so, like, he was in charge of the project creatively from there on. But he, yeah, so he, Dr. Witt got involved... Uh, because Ghibli really liked Father and Daughter and wanted to collab with him. Wanted to get Ghibli to collab with Wild Bunch. So, pretty interesting. So, yeah, Red Turtle. Every every year, I, in the Oscars, always throw a bone to a more adult out there for him in the future, it feels. I mean, what was last year's? Last year's? I think I'd have to look that up. I remember... In the year it got released, Chico and Rita was uh, was a nominee, I think. Yeah. Last year was Anna Melissa. Oh, yeah. And When Marnie Was There was also nominated. And Inside Out. was. Yeah, Inside Out won. Yeah. Huh. Of course, Inside Out won. Maybe When Marnie Was There should have won. I don't know. Inside Out was great. But, you know, Pixar, Disney, they're going to win, basically. Like, this year is probably going to be Zootopia. I think. Which, uh, I mean, honestly, Zootopia does not deserve to win at all. Really? It really doesn't. I mean, yeah, Kubo and the Two Strings should win. And, you know, some people are predicting that it could win because it has won some awards already in uh, other film festivals and uh, award shows. But uh, Zootopia was a darn fine film. I wouldn't mind it winning. It's just that against Kubo. Like, not even Kubo, though. Like, all of the, like, all the four other films are way better than Zootopia. Even Moana? The one we haven't seen? Okay, except for Moana. Moana I'm not sure about, but I know the other three for sure are far better than Zootopia. So that's interesting. So, I'm guessing you really like Red Turtle. Yes, I, I really enjoyed Red Turtle. I found it a very interesting film. Okay, so I think you've seen it more recently, because I've seen... I saw Red Turtle a couple weeks back at this point, but you just saw it fresh a uh, couple days ago. So why don't you lead off the discussion and kind of describe the plot of Red Turtle for us? Okay, so Red Turtle kind of starts off on an island, and there's a man who's been deserted on this island. And pretty much... One thing to note about this film is that, for the most part, it's silent. There's very little dialogue, and most of the dialogue that's there is just, like, them yelling. And so, pretty much starts off with this man kind of, like, trying to figure out how to survive. He first searches for water, then he finds food through the trees, and then once he gets all these basic necessities, he then tries to find an escape plan from the island. So, pretty much, he starts going through this kind of, like, not necessarily a montage, but the sequence of him building these rafts and trying to get off the island on these rafts. 
but whenever he tries to leave the island, the raft will suddenly be attacked by some mysterious thing and then collapse. He repeats this process a few times. But then after, like, I think the third or fourth attempt, he notices this red turtle in the water. And pretty much he realizes that the turtle is the one destroying these rafts. And pretty much this, like, completely pisses him off. And when he notices the red turtle coming onto the shore, he goes up to the turtle, hits it with, like, a stick of bamboo, and then he tips it over so that it can't survive and it dies. It's uh, pretty dark, yeah. Yeah, and this kind of traumatizes the guy, too, because he realized that he kind of killed this, like, this creature that was trying to survive on its own. And uh, you can see, like, this whole stuff about him trying to give this water to this dead turtle, and he's kind of like, He's very much scarred by the experience. But after a while, a strange thing happens. The red turtle turns into a woman with red hair. And this woman kind of pretty much, it's supposed to represent like kind of the soul of the turtle of sorts. And pretty much they befriend each other, the man and the t- woman who was once the red turtle. And they kind of grow a family. And then for the rest of the film, it's kind of them raising their son, kind of a coming of age thing of him leaving the nest. And then afterwards, it's them growing old together, and eventually, the like the man dies when he grows old from a natural death, and the woman in mourning kind of mourns his death, and then transforms back into the red turtle and goes off into the distance. So it's kind of it was kind of an interesting film because it was early on. It's kind of talking about all the mix of survival. Then the middle section is more about kind of respecting life, and then the last part kind of a coming of age and kind of like the journey of life itself. Yeah, overall, I think the film can be this described as exploring the odd places that life will lead you to and the strange mysteries of life and uh, the journey you take through it. And that it go it starts from one place and goes in a completely different direction and then ends up in a different direction and you can't like really predict where it's going or like who you'll meet or what experiences you're going to have and like where your the journey of your life will take you but it's it's pretty interesting on that level i would say that the red turtle is a very interesting film and it's very uh visually playful and i really appreciated that of course being completely visually uh, being completely reliant on visuals because it is a dialogueless film it has to convey a lot of emotion and a lot and convey a lot of mood and set the tone just through the art and animation and i think it does that very brilliantly as well as creating these really nice and surreal dream sequences that kind of make you guess at the reality of, like, everything you're looking at. Like, is what's really happening really what's happening? Or is it just in this guy's mind? You never really get a real answer. I mean, you could you can kind of just assume that there is some magic involved and the Red Turtle really does turn into a woman and all that stuff. But, like, it, it does keep you guessing at, too, like, what is happening and like what is it whether what you're seeing is really what's happening or like what's the deeper connection of all these various little things uh i will say i didn't love the movie as much as i wanted to just because i 
like during points of the film, there were times where I was just taken out of it due to either not being able to connect with what the characters were doing or because I felt like I had understood what the film is going for and I wanted something new, but it wasn't like doing anything that I wasn't expecting it to do. There were two mo- things that I found issue with was just when the guy w- uh, was like beating on the turtle and he killed it, that kind of automatically, that kind of animal violence and cruelty kind of automatically makes you dislike him. And, you know, he does feel guilty about it and stuff, so. Yeah, like, for me, I, I kind of realized that, like, this guy's, like, legitimately traumatized by it. Like, it was something he did in the heat of the moment. And then, like, when he realizes what, what he did was wrong, he tries to go and, like, give the turtle food and water, but it's already too late. Mm-hmm. And he's just left with this experience that's just, like, pretty much just kind of traumatized him. Yeah, so it is handled very well, but in the moment, it, like, immediately kind of turns you off if you're, like, not into seeing this poor turtle get beat up with a bamboo and then struggling on its back and de- Yeah, at first it was really sad for the turtle. It's like, poor turtle, it's on its back and it can't survive. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, and then I don't understand how the romance between the man and the red turtle who becomes a woman really happens. It, fe- it felt very quick to me. I didn't understand the, how the romance happens. Because I can understand, like, after uh, some time, like, the red turtle forgives the guy. But, like, them falling in love, it just happened a little too fast for me. So I didn't quite click with that. I did find their son's story very interesting and very satisfying in terms of his growth and uh, like seeing him as a as a child and then he kind of learns to be self-sufficient and then you see him like really coming to his own when the storm happens and he has to save both his mother and his father and that's like a real coming of age woman and then after that he goes and sets off on his own. And so I really liked like that mini story in the in the film a lot. I think if I were to criticize this film, it's probably for the fact that it's pretty much covering several themes instead of focusing on a singular one. Yeah, this is a a film about teams and emotion, not so much about logic and plot or even characters. So you're not gonna get a whole lot of explanations for why things happen or like how or like how things happen but it, like it's all about the emotions and all about yeah. exploring this overlying I- idea about the journey of life and where it takes you and then like and then with in the case of the kid like coming into one's own and go setting off and to adulthood all of that stuff so like the film has really strong like central underlying narrative and team to it. And I think I can really get, I could really appreciate that. But there were definitely times watching the film that I did find my attention waning. And I wasn't, and I felt myself questioning, like, what the film was trying to do, like, how the film was trying to approach its team by the way some things happened that didn't quite click with me. One of the, I could only, like, I really enjoyed the son's narrative, but I feel like the, the exploration of like his connection 
to the fact that like his mother is part turtle, they could have gone a little further with that. I mean, he befriends a bunch of turtles and they basically become his companions. But maybe if he also was, could be switch between human and turtle, kind of like the kids and wolf children, how they could be human and wolf. Yeah, when they first introduced the kid, I thought like his whole thing was going to be that like, he could turn into the turtle. Right, and then in the end, he's going to have to choose whether he wants to live as a human or live as a turtle, which is like kind of the thing in Wolf Children. I mean, to be fair, he does pretty much choose to be a turtle. It's just that he is still human. I don't know. I don't think that's what he chooses to do. I think he just chooses off to explore the world. Yeah, actually, yeah, that, that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly he's influenced by his like turtle genetics, though, because they like always. Like, throughout the film, they're emphasizing how he swims exactly like the turtles. Yeah. Like, even in the motion. Like, I think that, from an animation standpoint, I really like that they did those whole subtle touches that really kind of, like, drive home these, like, elements of the characters. I thought that was really well done. Uh, Is there anything else you wanted to talk about in regards to the Red Turtle? I mean, we didn't talk about our uh, theater experience. Oh, we usually start off with that. Well, yeah. to be honest, the theater experience I had was rather dull, because it wasn't a full theater, and the people who were there, I think there were a few, like, families, like, a few parents who brought their kids, but mostly it was, like, people who are just film lovers. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, my theater was mainly full of kind of older people as well, but I'd say the theater itself was about three-fourths full. Since I went to, like, a night showing on a weekend, I think a lot more people came. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, said, I saw mine in the mid-afternoon, so that could probably be hardly the reason. Yeah, I mean, overall, like, it's one of those films where, like, there's not, like, a lot of audience engagement. So, like, it's hard to talk about the experience, I guess. Because for most of the film, you're just kind of silent, like, paying attention to the screen. And kind of, like, trying to take in everything. That's coming from the visuals. Yeah, I mean, it's as a basically a dialogueless film. You really do have to pay attention to everything that's happening on screen, especially since the film has so many surreal elements. You really need to like pay close attention to each image to really pick apart like what's happening, and as well you should because the backgrounds in this film are absolutely gorgeous. Every frame of this film is just so beautiful looking. Oh yeah, I mean this this film is absolutely beautiful. Of the Oscar nominated animated films for this year, I'd say this one looks the prettiest, I guess, out of all of them. I think without a doubt, like it not even, no comparison. Like I I love Kubo's visual style and everything, but Red Turtle, Red Turtle is like is outstanding visually. It's like a real feast for the eyes. It's definitely hard to describe that just on this audio podcast. I mean, it, I, I'm sure it's still, Red Turtle is still screening in a bunch of states around the U.S., so if there's one near you, I highly recommend that you go see this movie. Because if anything, the visuals alone are worth seeing it for, because of just how beautiful it looks. Most definitely. I do think it's a film worth seeing. Does it deserve to win the Oscar? I'm not quite sure yet. I mean... But does it deserve it more than Zootopia, Sid? See, I'm not sure, because I think I enjoy Zootopia more. 
Really? Yeah. I mean, I like Zootopia a lot. It has a lot going for it. Like, it has a fantastic world, really great character animation, and it has a really cool team for a Disney film that, no, it doesn't quite work if you actually try to apply it one-to-one to real life. But, like, in the context of what it's trying to do and in its world, it is really interesting and, like, really cool to kind of see being explored in a kid's movie. So I really had a lot to appreciate about Zootopia. Like, the thing with Zootopia for me is, like, I liked Zootopia. I thought it was a fun film. But at the same time, I don't think it deserves an Oscar. And it kind of hurts me that it's going to win an Oscar regardless of the quality of, the, of these other films, simply because it's Disney. And, and, that, and that's kind of annoying, because then you're pretty much ignoring the merits of the other films. And I'd say, like, in terms of overall theme, My Life is Zucchini, Red Turtle, and Kubo all do that a lot better. They have much, they convey their themes a lot stronger. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be disappointed if Zootopia wins this year, but it's at least going to be better than the year that Frozen beat the wind rises. <laughs> Ugh. That kills me inside every time I think about it. Yeah, but before we go off on more tangents, is that all we have to say on Red Turtle? I think so. Yeah, Red Turtle was a very interesting film and definitely a deserving Oscar Best Anime Feature nominee. I definitely recommend you go see it if it's playing in a theater near you. Because just on the grounds of the visuals alone, it is beautiful. A definite treat for animation lovers. Yeah, definitely go see this. It's beautiful. Well, Let's move on to Ghost in the Shell, then. discussing the original animated film just in time for the live-action film to come out. I have a lot to say about that live-action film. I'm not going to say it here because it'll take very long to make it out. Well, you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, but even even on the premise right now, it won't be seen a bit already based on trailers. Ugh. I want to tear this apart, but I, I don't want to waste time right now. Yeah, so let's get into Ghost in the Shell. We saw the, not an anniversary screening, but like a, a recent screening that Funimation teamed up with Lionsgate to show the film. And they did a two-day screening. One day was a sub-screening, one day was a dub screening. I saw the sub-screening, V-Lord saw the dub screening, and safe to say for both our theater experiences, uh, the film, the fil- this theater was fully packed. Like, fully packed. Oh yeah, it was definitely packed in my screen too. Uh, so we were both lucky that we could find seats at our respective screenings. But yeah, I watched the sub, the Lord watched the dub, and Ghost in the Shell. There's not much to say because it is an amazing film, and we can dig into the teams all we want. But uh, I think we, I think we need to like prepare a script to really be able to talk about everything. Yeah, I mean it's a Mamoru Oshii film. There's a lot to kind of look into there. The guy always puts, like, these very complex themes in his films, and you can pretty much spend hours, like, tearing it apart and 
find every nook and cranny about like what stuff means. Yeah, honestly, we probably aren't equipped enough yet to really discuss the films like in stream depth. But we'll probably try and be have more to like really be able to like analyze for the sake of comparing it with the new live action film when we do that episode. Yeah, and how better it's going to be than that. Yeah, but, like, just in general, what's awesome about Ghost and Shell, it presents this very realistic version of what the world could be in the future, where humans have integrated machines into themselves, and they have kind of transcended their own human bodies in that their consciousness can now exist within machines. Basically, transhumanism has happened in the world of Ghost in the Shell. People are, can exist without physical bodies now. And not only that, but artificial AIs can sprout up just being born in the interweb. They, and like they can have a fully realized consciousness. Uh, they are not just programs. They are a genuine consciousness. Which places some doubt onto what defines a human consciousness and whether there is a difference between an AI and a human mind. Yeah, I mean, the big, the big theme of Ghost in the Shell is pretty much what defines humanity. And pretty much in, in a world where cyberization has become such like a big thing, everyone has some cybernetic part to them, pretty much it's getting to the point where are we more machine? than human. Yeah, even Tokusa, who is the most human out of all of them, still has, like... He has, like, minor brain enhancements. Yeah, he still has enhancements that allow him to yeah. telepathically communicate with Matoko and the rest of Section 9. So even he has integrated modern machinery as a part of himself, even if he's not, like, a cyborg like the rest of them, or he doesn't have, like, artificial limbs. So... It's, this is a world where people have, like, fully integrated technology into themselves, and that's a totally normal thing. And it's also a world where technology has advanced to the point where it can create genuinely autonomous beings that are, like, real existing entities that have their own thoughts and that aren't just pre-programmed. It's a really interesting idea the puppet master character in particular, and what he wants. Because the movie also explores that if such a being were to manifest, uh, how would it define itself as a life form? And the puppet master's conclusion is fascinating in that he believes that to be a life form, you need to be able to reproduce and pass on your genetic information. Simply creating copies of himself wasn't enough. So what he wanted to do with Motoko was merge their personalities so that he could be able to create a new genetic information that he could disperse into the web. And those like new personalities could merge with other things in the web and they could reproduce. And basically, he would leave behind descendants that would be constantly evolving. Because as he was just... As an individual AI, he had no ability to evolve. And if he were just to leave behind copies of himself, that would just be 
the same. They wouldn't have any individuality and they wouldn't have any differences that would lead to evolution of his existence as a life form. And that's what he really wanted. But Toko's whole thing in the film is that she has a crisis of, like, identity and that she doesn't know if she's really human anymore. Like, she's fascinated with the Puppet Master because he is an entity that considers itself a living being and, like, she wants to know, like, if she could be the same kind of thing as the Puppet Master. And we never really know, like, if she could be, like, an artificial, like, AI, but, or, or if she was really human. Like, we never get to understand that aspect. But what she does realize is that her identity as a life form is what she defines it as, and she can choose to be whatever she wants because she has the ability to evolve herself as a human being. And probably like butchering and not communicating the point very well because this is all spontaneous and based off of memory and interpretation. But that's basically the gist of what the film is going for. There are a lot, there are videos made by tons of people, analysis made by tons of people who explain a bunch of that more coherently and sensically than uh, I could at this moment. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, like, tons of analyses out there. I, the one that I really am going to recommend, because I I really found it incredibly interesting, and I have re-listened to it often, is Anime Every Day's video about Motoko's dilemma in the Ghost in Shell film, which is this half-hour dissection of Motoko's character arc in the film and how it relates to the themes of the film. And that's an utterly fascinating video. Highly recommend that one if you're going to seek out any Ghost in Shell analysis. But, uh, yeah, that's basically what the film is about. And just to speak about the film as, like, a piece of entertainment, just pure entertainment, like, this film is amazingly animated. Like, it holds up so well. Like, the attention to anatomy is astonishing, and it is so visceral. Especially in the scenes Motoko is pulling on, the like, the top of the tank thing. And her arms rip apart, and like she, it, they tear off, and you just see her twist, and like the insides of her like go bleed out. It's like such a disturbing, uncomfortable, visceral scene, and that attention to anatomy really is what sells that. Like this film, it, there is a lot of time spent talking, but like during these action scenes, like it is gorgeously animated on a level yeah. that few other films, animated films could ever dare approach and it is just astonishing how well it holds up and in terms of pacing the film is incredibly fast-paced and i think every scene of this film is basically iconic and memorable to the point like everyone knows the beat of the film one by one and by the time you get to the end you're like surprised at how quickly the film moved and it's an 80 minute film but it just moves so fast. Like, there is no slow part of this film. Even the three-and-a-half-minute sequence, which is just showing off the city, and this, like, choir-ish, like, orchestral song accompanying it, which is a great mood piece and basically the theme of the movie. And even that just feels so fast and just feels so utterly fascinating and engrossing because of how it depicts the world and how each 
frame has so much going on in it and just so much to pick apart just as a still image. It is beautiful. Like, this is one of the greatest animated films. Not No, greatest films, just period, ever made. Just on pure technical accomplishment, if nothing else. But, of course, the teams that it explores and the vision of the future that it that it presents is what really elevates it to the next level as a relevant and culturally important piece of cinema. Yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head with why this film is so great. I mean, to go on to a different note, um, what was like the overall, I guess, audience reaction to the film in the theater? Honestly, it wasn't that major in the sense that this wasn't a film where you got people like really hooting or cheering or like yelling at the screen like you did with One Piece or Yu-Gi-Oh! Where that, those films had major like audience participation in laughter. Like Ghost in the Shell, it has humor in it, but it's not, it's not a film that's, that goes out of its way to make jokes. So there wasn't a whole lot of like comments or like visible reaction from the crowd. I got the sensation that, like me, a lot of people, like, cringed in, like, discomfort when Motoko's body was being ripped apart and stuff. But generally, it was a very satisfied crowd, but it wasn't an amazingly, like, active crowd, at least from what I remember. Now, definitely before the movie started, uh, when the trailer for the live-action movie was playing... Uh, there was some, uh, there were some comments people made, <laughs> but, uh, but, at comments, the movie, but at the movie itself, not a lot, but, uh, there were some groans from the audience, uh, during I the mean, trailer. I mean, I approve, I approve of those groans. <laughs> considering what, considering we were talking about this a few days ago about, like, some stuff with this and show live action film, considering what I know about the film right now. Oh, I just want to tear it apart. Oh, boy. So, uh, I assume that your theater had a pretty interesting audience reaction? I mean, it, it wasn't so, like, a wide reaction, but more of a few things I know. So, like, like you, know, like, for the majority of the film, like, most people were kind of just, like, engaged and immersed in the film. You could, like, tell the reactions on their faces based on what scenes, like, like, when Motoko's, uh, body's being ripped, like, pretty much torn apart, you can just see everyone kind of, like, kind of, like, this fear that they're feeling with, like, just all, like, this pain that Motoko's feeling. I mean, aside from that, during one of the scenes, the guy next to me actually fell asleep and started storing. Oh, right! You told me about this! <laughs> and, then, and then, like, his buddy pretty much just whacks him on the face. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, dude, you're not falling asleep during this stuff. Good on that guy. Yeah, I, I think I think that guy probably brought him along because he was probably the ghost in the show, but he wanted to see it. Yeah, good on, good on him for waking that guy up because he was missing a masterpiece. To be fair, when I first tried to watch this film when I was like eight, I think I fell asleep. Eight? Where did you see this film when you were eight? I don't know. I think I got like the, the DVD from the library or something. When you were eight? I think no so. Way. Ain't that you that would have been like what, two thousand five? Maybe not, maybe it was like when I was ten, I don't remember. That was so early into our anime watching days. Like when you were ten. Yeah. Maybe it was when I was ten then. When you were ten, that would have been like two thousand 
Man, that would have been 2008. Like, Tanami ended when you were 10. <laughs> yeah. That's weird to think um, about. Yeah, but I, I do remember falling asleep the first time I watched this film. To be fair, when you're that young, I don't think you can really respect everything about Ghost in the Shell. I remember I even tried to watch Standalone Complex back then, and I just couldn't get into it. But now it's one of my favorite anime of all time. Yeah. Yeah, I just found that, like, a funny reaction. And, I mean, in terms of other stuff for this with the like, I, I brought my uh, two of my friends along who had who were kind of relatively, I guess, new to Ghost in the Shell as a franchise. Like, one of them had seen the one of the Arise, the Arise film, and the other one hadn't seen anything. Like, overall, their, like, reactions to the film are more, like, mixed. I think the original Ghost in the Shell film, while it is amazing, I think a lot of, like, enjoyment out of it comes when you also see all these stuff within the franchise and then come back to it. I don't necessarily agree. I think your appreciation definitely improves if you have other pieces of the franchise to compare it to. But I also think that just watching the movie more than once is going to help you. Because oh, there's yeah, so too. much going on in the movie that you might not even understand the main narrative or Matoko's character arc, which is what drives the film on the first viewing. So it's probably yeah. a film you should watch more than once to really understand it. I mean, people say the same with Innocence as well. I know Innocence is like an even more like complex film thematically. Yeah, I still need to see Innocence. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping like this film screening was so successful that Funimation might try and put Innocence out in theaters too, which would be neat. Yeah, I'd be down for watching Innocence in the theater. That'd be pretty cool. I mean, they're releasing the Innocence Blu-ray, I think. Yeah, so that would be a good promotion for that Blu-ray. I mean, there was a trailer for the Blu-ray with this film, but... Honestly, I might want to pick up that Blu-ray. Yeah, I mean, we have the original. We might as well get Innocence. It's, it sucks that it doesn't have the uh, Richard F. Carr-directed dub, though. Really? Why not? That's so weird. Like, I don't know. I, I think it's some rights thing, because that was made for the UK. Oh, okay. So, Epker is still obviously in the other dog. He was in both dogs, but this was... For the UK, I think they couldn't originally use the American-produced English dog, so they had Epcar produce a new one for the UK. Okay. I hear his I hear his, his version of it is, like, particularly interesting, though. Because I know that he was, like, a very huge fan of, like, Innocence. I might have to seek that out, then. I know the... I think the original manga entertainment release of the film has it. I might have to hunt down that. Yeah, we should probably check that out at some point. But is there anything else you want to talk about Ghost in the Shell? I don't think so. I mean, Ghost in the Shell. Amazing film, masterpiece, one of the greatest films of all time. And very much the beginning, anime-wise, of one of the greatest franchises in anime of all time. Yes. A franchise that's going to get ruined now because of a live-action film. Uh, I don't think it's going to get ruined. The film's not going to be good, though. Yeah, well, I was being hyperbolic, but honestly, I honestly, I honestly don't think the film looks that bad. Sid, <laughs> Sid, Kuze is the main villain. <laughs> yeah. They're going to ruin it. They, they, they completely are missing the point. No, they're, gonna, they're completely missing the point, but... Oh, I, I don't know. I, I can't. I can't bring myself to really. Hate the way that, that they seem, the way that they seem to go to be portrayed, Kuze is terrible. That's not Kuze. You don't destroy one of the best standalone complex characters. Yeah. Well, 
I think that actually does it then for this episode of Movie Mavericks. You know, it's kind of strange because by the time this episode comes out, you know, already known who won the Oscar. I mean, yeah, I mean, the Academy Awards are on the 26th. Yeah, so who knows? Who knows? Well, let's not let's not bore you with the details of the past here. Instead, Relord, why don't you tell the good people where they can find you? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at VLORDGTZ. That's V-L-O-R-D-G-T-Z. Um, and yeah, that's kind of really all I'm using right now. I mean, I'm also on anima- Animation Revolution occasionally. Or, I, I guess every day I look on Animation Revolution. Just I just don't post every day. Um, aside from that, I'm on a Kitsu as well. If you guys have transitioned over to Kitsu, which I do recommend. Kitsu is a pretty good service. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it. As for me, you can find me as Lamramayasha on my anime list, Twitter, Kitsu, and Animation Revelation. Uh, you can also find my art on Sid Gupta's Awesome Art blog. And then pretty soon, I'll be setting up like an actual portfolio site. I made my own actual like professional Twitter, which is just, no, at Kid Gupta, where I'm basically going to just post my links to my art and writing just there. And that's just a basic, that's that's a Twitter account I made for for just professional networking purposes on Twitter. So, like, people don't get distracted by all the manga nonsense that I usually tweet about on my main Twitter. And, yes, yeah, so you also, as for the show, you can find it on allcomic.com. Movie Mavericks basically is coming out bi-weekly now. It's just every now and again we have a special episode of Manga Mavericks or something, so that might push the releases of Movie Mavericks back. Yeah, I mean, Movie Mavericks pretty much fills in the empty gaps within the Manga Mavericks schedule. Basically the point of Movie Mavericks is that with Movie Mavericks, Manga Mavericks, and then Manga Fights, which will probably return in May, there will always be content from us every week. And also, you can find us on YouTube, where we're basically posting excerpts from our episodes every day. So if you want to consume our podcast in more manageable bite-sized chunks, you can head over there and listen to us on YouTube. Make sure to like our videos and subscribe to us on YouTube, because that helps the channel grow. And we need 100 subscribers so that we can get our custom URL. Also make sure to like and leave a comment on iTunes. That really helps our channel grow as well. And if you have any questions or suggestions to send to us, send them to mangamavericks at gmail.com. And you can also follow the show, manga underscore mavericks on Twitter, and mangamavericks.tumblr.com if you want to follow us on social media. That about does it, and we will see you in the next one. Bye, guys. Yeah, later. Uh...